Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. Hello, I'm reading from Acts chapter 13, chapter 13 and verses 13 to 41. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidon, Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up. Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power he led them out of that country. For about 40 years he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for. For there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning them, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they carried out, all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know 
that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am doing something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Tonight we look at Paul, obey the call to the gospel. He has been called, he has been commissioned. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 13, we see the Holy Spirit call him out specifically and Barnabas for the work of the gospel ministry. And where we pick up tonight from verses 13, Paul has been traveling, preaching the gospel in the synagogues among the Jews, and at this specific moment, he is in Pisidian Antioch, where he is attending the Sabbath, as was his habit. Providentially, he and Barnabas are called upon to give an exhortation from the Lord. And Paul rising up, especially after the reading from the law and Moses, Paul begins to expound what that might mean for God's people. You have read about the law, you have read about Moses, but what does it really mean for you? Is it just Old Testament history that you are happy to have and to identify with? And he says, men of Israel, and those whom among you fear the Lord, let me tell you what this means for you. And in this passage, he will tell them so many things, of course. But three things at least jump out of this text that tie it together. Number one, he will introduce them to the God of Israel. He will explain his sovereignty and his faithfulness, especially in as regards to keeping his promises to the very end. He will introduce them to the gospel that God's promises to Israel culminate into the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ, God's own son. He will not only explain who Jesus is, he will explain to them what Jesus has done. And number three, he will invite them to receive the gift that is offered through the gospel. So we have God, we have the gospel, and we have the gift that comes through that gospel. In fact, by the time Paul concludes his sermon, he is speaking with great confidence. And in verse 32 he says, We tell you the good news, that what God has promised our ancestors, He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus Christ. In verses 38 and 39, he says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Paul does not only proclaim to them that this is good news, but he actually speaks it with great confidence because he not only knows the good news as facts, but he experientially knows this good news. It has not only been given to him as information, but it has changed him. And he brings it to them with the conviction and the confidence that if they do commit to it, it will change their lives as well. No wonder later, 
as he writes to the church at Rome in chapter 1 from verses 16 to 17, Paul says that, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. In this passage, we will not only meet a Paul who is convinced of the gospel facts, but a Paul who has been converted by the truth in those facts. And therefore a Paul who is not only convinced to proclaim it, but is committed to do so with great confidence that indeed the gospel has power to save. And everyone who believes, including among us tonight, will indeed have a transforming experience in Jesus Christ our Lord. So going back to our first point, what is Paul saying about God? Why does he think that this message is a message worth sharing among the Jews and even the Gentiles, especially most of those who did not know God at that time? Now he begins to explain God by recounting the history of God's people. But really when you look at this narrative, it is not just the history of God's people. It is actually God's act in history to redeem his people. This is not just a story about what is happening to Israel. It is a story about who God is, what he has done, what he continues to do, and why he is worthy of everyone's attention. And the first thing that comes out clear is that the Paul that God introduces to these Jews and Gentiles is one that he is sovereign. That he stands powerful, he stands majestic, He stands at a place where nothing and no one is incomparable to him. Paul begins to describe his wonders in history. How he chose the nation of Israel. How he made them prosper even in the midst of slavery in Egypt. How he led them out of this country with his powerful hand. And from every step in this narrative, you can see that it is God at work from beginning to the end. He's the one who calls them. He's the one who moves them. He's the one who preserves them. He's the one who provides for them. He's the one who delivers them. He's the one who moves them. Even against their sinfulness, he still preserves them until he provides a Messiah or a Savior for them and through them. Clearly, Paul's God is a God who is sovereign. And this God has become our God, and that is what Paul wants us to know tonight. That the good news is that this God is not just the historical God of Israel, but he has become ours as well in Christ Jesus. That we who were Gentiles, we who were formerly dead in our sins, we who were cut off from the blessings of Israel, In Christ Jesus, we have found our blessing. In Christ Jesus, we have also been set free and set apart to belong to this God, for which all praise and honor belong to him. But this God is not just a sovereign God. He is also a faithful God. And it is very, very important that we understand that. If God were only powerful, if God were only mighty, If God were only glorious but not faithful, it would not help us at all. Probably he would even destroy us. Because as we begin to look through this narrative, we notice that everything God is, is the opposite of what his people are. 
while God was faithfully, graciously, mercifully preserving them and saving them, what were they doing? They were responding in disobedience. They were responding in idolatry. They were responding in pride. But we are told that this same God was patient with them for over 40 years. He endured them. He loved them in spite of who they were. And he fulfilled his promises. Not because they were good, but because he is a faithful God. Paul believes that this is a very important point. Not only for the Jews at that time, but for all of God's people at all times to know. That ours is a God of faithfulness. Ours is a God who will keep his word no matter what is happening in our lives or around us. Even when we fail God, he still remains faithful to his word and to his character and to his nature. And because God is that faithful, we can count on him. He is reliable. We can be sure that whatever he has begun in us, he will bring to completion. No wonder Paul is confident in proclaiming this God. Who would keep quiet after knowing what kind of God he is? Who would stop telling the wonders of this God? Paul says, you see, the God with whom you have come to relate is not just a sovereign majestic God, but he is one who is faithful and one who will keep his word to the very end. He protected Israel. He took them into the promised land. He destroyed the heathen nations for their sake. And at the proper time, he presented Jesus before them through David, their ancestors. What do we learn from here? Paul wants us to know that this God, who is sovereign and who is faithful, has fulfilled his promises as we see them recounted in the Old Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. So he moves from the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God and brings this to the climax in the person of Jesus Christ that he presents before these Jews and Gentiles as the object of their faith and their worship. And so he tells them that this God who has been faithful in the past, this God who has been sovereign in the past, Whatever he took you through was so that he could bring you into an encounter and a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he begins to explain who Jesus is. And in this passage, he points a number of things about Jesus that make him too important to ignore, that make him too urgent to keep quiet about. And a number of things that he points out include the following. Number one, that this Jesus who was presented to these Jews is actually the Jesus who fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament. That whatever Jesus is and whatever Jesus will do is what was written about him in the law and the prophets that they had read about before Paul stood up. In fact, Jesus himself says that in Luke chapter 24, after he has resurrected from the dead. He comes to his disciples, they are confused, and he says, don't you know, don't you understand that what was written about me in the law and in the prophets and in the writings must come to pass, that the Messiah must suffer and die and rise on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to the nations of the world. What is Jesus saying here? That clearly the whole Old Testament was actually all about him. 
The prophets looked forward to the promise of the coming Messiah. The writings anticipated the coming of the Savior. And this Jesus, of whom the law and the prophets testify, has come. And what that means is there is no more excuse. There is no more pleading of ignorance. All men, all women are now invited to this man Jesus because in him is the hope of their salvation. What makes him the hope of this salvation? Paul begins to point a number of things that make Jesus unique, that make Jesus supreme, and make him the only one who is the hope for the world. Number one, he tells us that this Jesus has lived a perfect life. That even though they brought him to Pilate for crucifixion, they could not find anything in him that was worthy of death. That in his life, he had lived so perfectly, so sinlessly, that nobody could point a finger at Jesus. Now what does that mean for us? It is not just important to know that Jesus was sinless, but it has implications. That because Jesus lived perfectly and obeyed the law of God and the righteous requirements of God's standard, Jesus has become the perfect qualified representative between us and God. It is his righteousness now imputed upon all those who believe that they can stand before God with confidence. That because Jesus Christ has fully obeyed God's expectations and standards, he is the only person qualified to represent us, which is why he is the only mediator between God and man. But also that we will be accepted before a righteous God, not because we ourselves are righteous, but because Jesus, the righteous one, who has been accepted, his righteousness has been reckoned as ours. And once you understand that, friends, then you begin to realize that salvation is indeed a miracle. It is a wonderful gift. And anyone who has received it is really privileged to belong. Because apart from the perfect righteousness of Christ, there is no other way that you and I could ever be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life. But not only that, while he was sinless, while he did not deserve to die, yet at the hands of wicked men, he was put to death on the cross and he hung on a tree. Why is it important for the Apostle Paul to give us details about Jesus' death? And more particularly, why does he think it is important for us to know that Jesus hung on the cross even though he was sinless? It is important because you see, it is written in the scriptures that cursed is every man who hangs on the tree. And we are told that when Jesus hung on that Calvary's cross, he actually became a curse for us. He who was sinless became sin, so that we who were sinful might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus, by hanging on that tree, the one who was sinless, received the penalty of the sins of all mankind upon himself, that we who deserved to experience the wrath of God might instead be delivered, might instead be saved, might instead be declared righteous on account of Jesus Christ. Jesus became our curse. And as a result of what he endured and went through, you and I have received the blessing of God. 
Jesus did not only die on the cross in which he took the penalty of your sin and gave you his righteousness, but this Jesus died and this Jesus has been raised from the dead. And when Paul talks about the resurrection, he draws from the Old Testament to prove indeed that this resurrection is not just a historical experience, but is actually one that has far-reaching implications for you and me. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, as the scriptures testify, then indeed he is the promised Messiah. Then indeed he is the Son of God who was prophesied to come and who would take away the sins of the world. And so his resurrection becomes proof and a guarantee that Jesus is not only who he says he is, but he will also do what he says he will do. Praise the name of the Lord. And so we not only come to this Jesus as the historical Jesus who died and rose again, but the one whose death and resurrection has benefits for us, has implications for our lives for all eternity, and one whose resurrection is a guarantee that we ourselves will be raised from the dead. But more so is a guarantee that God has been satisfied with his sacrifice. Because Christ has raised from the dead, we now know that God has been satisfied with his eternal sacrifice. And therefore, on the basis of that satisfaction, we who were alienated and destined for destruction can now find life eternal in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. So Paul says, you need to know this Jesus. No wonder he rounds it up saying, this is the message of our salvation. This is the good news, brothers and sisters. He wants these Jews and Gentiles to know that the Jesus they had been waiting for, the Jesus they had had prophesied, has become a living reality. He has done the work that he was supposed to do. He has paid the price for their salvation. And now he says to everyone who believes, now forgiveness of sins is possible. But even beyond just the taking away of sins, justification that could not come from the law has now become possible. Man can now become right with God. Man can now be reconciled with God. Man can now have hope that goes beyond the grave. And that is the message of the gospel. That ours is not just a call to go to the nations to talk about a God who worked long ago, but ours is a call to proclaim the resurrected living Christ who continues to work in the lives of all those who believe. Brothers and sisters, we have been privileged. We have been given the most important message that anybody can ever give. A message that was finished in the past, but has far-reaching implications in the present and even in the great eternity to come. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you have been called as an ambassador of this great news to take to the nations that in Christ Jesus, the lost can find hope. That in Christ Jesus, the dead can find eternal life. That in Christ Jesus, those who were cut off can be reconciled to God. You can see why Paul speaks this wonderful news with confidence. You can see why Paul will endure suffering. Why Paul will be persecuted. Why Paul will be beaten. 
Why Paul will even be willing to die for the sake of this message? Because there is no better news than this. There is no better news that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. There is no better news that man who was on the highway to destruction can now find eternal life. Not on the basis of his personal effort, but on the basis of the finished work of Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you listen to this message, as wonderful as it is, and then you look at the state of world missions today, and you wonder where the dichotomy is. Why is it that ours is a wonderful message, a transforming one at that, one that we know that we should take to the nations of the world, but for some reason we are not eager to go. For some reason we are not sure that we need to go. For some reason, we lack a sense of urgency to take it out. For some reason, we continue to find all sorts of excuses as to why we cannot share this message with our neighbors. Is it possible that we can understand the transforming power of the gospel and continue to live as though nothing really mattered? And we continue to live as business as usual? If we are understanding this gospel well, but we find it convenient and comfortable to disregard it, then there is a very big problem. There is a dichotomy between what we know and what we do with what we know. And that is my challenge tonight. How can we understand the gospel of Christ's saving grace well enough that we are convinced of it, we are convicted by it, and we are committed to proclaim it with confidence? How can we do that? How can we not only know the gospel facts, but go beyond the facts and see the implications that arise out of that gospel? And this is what Paul is saying. That you Jews have been opening the scriptures from Sabbath to Sabbath. You have read the law. You have read the prophets. But what have you done with them? Do you realize that the law and the prophets have found fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ? And if indeed you believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, what have you done with that knowledge and that understanding? Our challenge with Christianity today is that it has become one of the head but not of the heart. So many people know the facts of the gospel. So many people know that it is important to become a believer. But many of them, while assenting to the gospel intellectually, have not committed themselves to it spiritually. And as a matter of fact, it has remained wonderful information, but one that does not save. People who will be eternally condemned at the end of it all are not necessarily those who did not hear the gospel. They are people who heard the gospel. They are people who assented to it mentally and intellectually, but never committed their hearts and minds to it. And this is our challenge tonight. That we go beyond the gospel facts. That we go beyond talking about Jesus. But we embrace him and we share him with the world. We present him as the only answer, as the only hope for the world today. But for that to happen, we must know who he is. We must know what he has done. You cannot share with others what you do not have. So before you even go out to tell it all, do you understand who Jesus is and what he has done? 
Paul begins with the recounting of God's sovereignty and faithfulness in history. But more so, he reveals his deep understanding of who God is and what he has done. How many believers today can confidently explain and clarify who God is and what he has done to the unbelieving friends within their communities? While many of us are proud to be Christians, while many of us are comfortable identifying ourselves with the church, many of us quite often do not know enough to talk about our God with confidence. So when non-believers ask us for the hope that is within us, maybe we will refer them to our pastor, maybe we will refer them to the internet, maybe we will tell them, just, just believe, just, just be sincere with whatever you believe. Uh, who knows God will understand what you are going through. But is that what we are called to be? We are called to be, to not only know who Jesus is, but to be prepared to give reasons for the hope that is within us. And as believers, I would like to challenge us that we become grounded in the truth of this gospel, that we are convinced of it well enough that we can share it with confidence, even amongst those people that quite often will be opposed to the gospel message. We must know what the gospel is. But number two, we must believe this gospel. Beyond the understanding of the head, we must be firmly convinced that this is life. That this is power. It is transforming. It has transformed us. And it can transform those that we take the message to. If we do not believe that the gospel has transforming power, how can we take it to others with confidence? What will we show when others ask us about why we believe what we believe? We must be convinced of the changing power of this gospel if we are going to take it out to the world and convince others that it is worth listening to and worth believing. So knowing the gospel is important. Believing the gospel is important. But number three, we must take this gospel to the nations of the world. If we really believe in this gospel, that it can change lives, and we believe that we are living examples of that transformation, all the more reason why we need to go out and share it. I am always impressed by this woman, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, who had an encounter with Jesus, and after Jesus had explained to her who he is, out of excitement, she leaves her water pot and she goes back to her town. And what is the story? Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. This woman goes out with great excitement. In fact, to some extent, she even exaggerates. Because really, Jesus did not tell her everything she ever did. But that shows how excited, how eager she is to share about the goodness of Jesus. And that is the kind of response that should characterize people who have been transformed by the gospel message. That ours is to proclaim that message with great eagerness, with great joy, because we are speaking of what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have tested, what we has changed us, and we are convinced beyond any shadow of doubt that this Jesus who has changed us is able to change as many as possible and as many as we listen to the gospel message. Are you convinced in the transforming power of the gospel? Are you convinced that this Jesus has power to change lives and to give people a hope that goes beyond the grave? And if you are, 
Can you go to the nations of the world and proclaim this Jesus Christ and talk about his goodness and talk about his grace and talk about his power to save? Because that's what the Great Commission is about. That convinced, converted, committed, convicted people go out to communicate and clarify the gospel with courage and with compassion. May God bless you as you reflect on these things tonight. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.